Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Listen in while Adam Kiave Manalo Camp speaks to Mapuana Hayashi Simpliciano, a Kanaka Maoli and Ainu rights advocate, educator, scholar, poet, and hip hop artist. Aloha mai kako. So um, I grew up in Pu'uloa, otherwise known as Eva Beach, um, Kuhina Street. Um, uh, I think gr- I grew up there in a very um, particular time uh, as development with Haseko was just about to happen to the extent to create the Eva Beach that we know and see today. So um, in a lot of ways, um, that has really informed like my my ideas of Aina and Aina Momona because we you know we were able to at that point in time access how bush and go ahead and pick limu mm-hmm. and there was still opihi on the rocks that you could scrape with your dad's car keys off and um you know it, it and so whenever I think of that because I'm not somebody that is really strong in terms of you know mahiai and and, and farming. Um, I always think of the joy that I had in when I was a little kid, when, in my little kid time, um, in, in my experiences in Eva Beach. Um, but with that said, as I as around my teenage years, that the Eva Beach that I was raised in rapidly changed, and they um, you know dredged out um, the, the the coral bed and held bush and. So a lot of, in a lot of ways, when people ask me where I'm from, I feel like it's kind of a, a loaded question. So yes, I am, um, you know, I'm I'm from Eva Beach, but at the same time, a lot of when people say, like, you know, no hair my oi, a lot of times I'll say, um, uh, you know, no Waikiki my oi, um, because you know historically my family's from there. I spent a lot of time there. My dad um, was a, a Waikiki beach boy there. And um, in a lot of ways, I feel like Eva Beach is lost. Like a lot of my friends that live there, everybody, it's so expensive to live there now. I can't afford to live there now. I almost feel like I kind of lost that Aina. And then in a lot of ways, um, I, because um, of, of my father's connection in Waikiki and his ashes are there and all my uncles, their ashes are in the water of Uluniu. It's like that is the place that I connect to. And that is the place, even though many will say, oh, it's already gone. It's a tourist spot. That's a place that for me, I want to make sure that that remains Kanaka. I want to make sure that that remains accessible to my ohana. So that is the place that for me, like I kind of stick myself there. So, so would you say that Waikiki or Uloa is more of a special vahipana for you? You know, I think, for me, like just when when you just think about like just Aina and what Aina means and, and for again, that's a loaded word, right? A lot of people that means different things to different people. But you know, Aina as this place that feeds you for me that's spirit that spiritually and in a lot of ways, um, Eva Beach has constructed who I am as a person. Um and but 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 sadly. Eva Beach has allowed me to, to see gentrification and experience gentrification. Um, and not that Waikiki hasn't, but at the same time, 
that little bit of area of sand that we call dukes, or you know, I try to normalize the term Uluniu, the, the, the historical place name of that place. Um, that for me, that is a place where more and more I am internalizing that as Bahipana because because immediately my dad is in that water. Um, that's a place where I go to to feed myself spiritually and to remind myself, like, um, despite no matter what happens, despite who's here, it could be all these tourists, it could all these be all these people that think they own this aina. But in a lot of ways, like I'll be honest, in a lot of ways the Waikiki Beach Boys give me that 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 hope, like, in that in, in terms of resistance, that no no matter what, we're still gonna be here. So I, for me, that is a place um, I consider that. Vahipana. When I was when I was um, a teenager, I got a chance to meet of all people Papa Awai in Waikiki, and he was heavily involved in um, in um, you know restoring the the pono to that area where we now call it the Wizard Stones, right? Um, and so, for me, I don't want to lose that area as a vahipana, and so I always try to remind myself. There's so much history there. There's so much mana there to not to not let go of that. So it's a paradox. I think my life is a paradox in a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> so when you talk about like Vahipana and places that I connect to, uh, I would say more that little ili of Ulunio. Ulunio is my place. I think too, would you agree that a Vahipana can also be parts of an ocean. Oh, yes, definitely. Because yeah. we, when we hear that term, we often think of Vahipana as this land mm -hmm. and usually some kind of historical marker like a heiau mm -hmm. or a uh, kauhale that used to be there. Mm -hmm. But Vahipana could also be a section of the water, yes. a section of the ocean. Yes. It could also be a local ia. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, but yeah, to me, the water's there. And, and there, and historically, there were hail there. There's a lot of history there. But um, for me, the water as well as the people there, the history of the people there, to me, that makes that, that whole aina, that whole kai, wahipana to me. Pu'ulo also was famous for its uh, underwater hail mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the shark goddess. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a thing with the Andamans from the Andaman Islands that if you want to hear the voices of your ancestors, submerge yourself in the ocean. Mm. Would you agree with that? I would. I mean, I totally would uh, agree with that. Um, and what's funny is it, it actually connecting to my genealogy. I'm. I'm naturally. I'm not. I'm not. A water person. I'm not. A, you know. I'm, I'm not. A, in you know. I don't paddle canoe. I don't. I don't surf. I'm not that kanaka. Unfortunately, I wish I were. It's just not me. But um, really connecting to my mo'okuahau on on my many sides and understanding how the ocean has been that connector and that thread that has really made me develop so much more just reverence for Kanaloa and and um, entering into the water with so much more respect. Yeah. So, I mean, I would definitely agree with that metaphor of the Andaman Islanders. But yeah, just entering into that realm, is it's a special experience and we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that for granted. 
So when you were growing up in Uloa, did your parents speak Hawaiian or your grandparents speak Hawaiian? How, what was the role of the Hawaiian language in your mm. household? So I was, I was really lucky in that, um, you know, my mom understood that, you know, I was a hula dancer. And so my mom understood that I was looking to connect with hula and my hula lineage. And so around my house, and not that, not that my parents were native speakers, but around my house, you would see labels in Hawaiian. And so um, they tried to um, give me access to the language, even if, if they didn't have it. So for me, that was very special. But a turning point for me was actually, um, I, would, I would ride the bus from Waikiki to the Kodak Hula Show. I started dancing the Kodak, Kodak Hula Show. And one day, this kupuna came up to me. And he saw my hula bag and he asked me, he like pointed to one of my implements and asked me what was the word for this in, in, in Hawaiian. And I had told him, and then that was it. I, I, I couldn't shake him. His name was Kamaki Maunupau. And um, he, would, he then made it his mission to ride the bus with me every day and to olelo with me every day. And I didn't know this because he would actually ride the bus with me all the way from Waikiki, all the way up back to, 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 to my house, my stop. But he didn't live in Ever Beach. So he did that actually special for me. And I didn't, I didn't learn that until he had passed away. The bus driver told me that he would stay on because he would allow him to stay on the bus and the bus would turn around and go to Waipahu where he was teaching in Olelo Hawaii class at Waipahu High School. But um, he was a very, very, I call him Papa, Papa Maunupau. And, um, you know, so that was really a turning point for me because he was the one that really was like, you know, that's your kuleana. And unfortunately, my life went in such a way where I don't consider myself a fluent speaker, but he did put that aloha olalo in me. And so I hope to be able to share that with my students, my son. Um, and yeah. You are also a musician under the name Katana. Where did that name come from? <laughs> um, so... Actually, um, I think growing up, I was there was a lot happening at the time in Eva Beach in terms of gentrification, um, Batu ice. That was a huge thing in my community. And I tried to, now I look back on it, what I was doing was really reflecting on all the things that I was seeing. So I would write poems, I would write lyrics, I would write all these songs. And, um, and I would... I connected a lot with hip-hop and hip-hop culture. So I was a battle MC. And so it's kind of a nickname that other kids gave gave me because I'm real Kepani looking um, that I would cut like a katana in, in a lyrical <laughs> battle. <laughs> cool. so, and it's something that's stuck with me. I know going all through um, like college at UH Manoa, even a lot of my professors called me katana. <laughs> so. so when... That was a name given to you back in high school or in college or? I would say late, later in high school, around 16, 17. Yeah. In those years. <laughs> so in many ways, Pu'uloa um, <clears throat> was kind of a microcosm of Hawaii during that era where we had a lot of the gentrification, cementing of the land. And so music for you was also kind of a way of resisting, I guess. 
I think so. And I think it was, you know, at that point, it wasn't about resistance. At that point, it was about the eha, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. I was feel, I was really lucky in that my direct makua, you know, were not addicts. But certainly I had very close family members that were. Um, every, I mean, we had made what we called ice houses, right, on, on our street that were the center of selling and that type of activity of, of um of drugs and you you just began to see families that I played t-ball with or just you know involved in our community the men started going to jail the you know you would you just see the families breaking apart and eventually moving out moving away people could no longer afford to stay there and so um and then feeling that too in my own family so for me it was more so at that point about the eha so I know I'm cracking up because um you, I had shared some of my work with you, and you told me, you know, it's it's raw. And I think I, I think during that period of time, um, you know, that's where that comes from. That just that uh, one thing that I I do with my art is I don't censor that hurt and that pain. Um, some people take it as angry, but really, I think behind that there is the the hurt and that the the pain of what it is to have to face those disparities. There was also around the same time that the sovereignty movement began to yes. be more active. Yes. Were you involved with the sovereignty movement? So I was, like I said, I was really lucky. Um, at a certain point of time, I my my mother realized that I wasn't a whole group learner in a classroom for whatever reason, and I was homeschooled. So mm-hmm. um, and around that time, you know, it was Kalahui Hawaii came out and. So our, our field trips would be going down to Iolani Palace um, to watch how Nani give her, you know, famous speeches and just feeling that energy there and those, you know, and I was 14 years old. So a lot of that, I think, really shaped the way that I see women and their capability of being leaders um, and also just voicing, voicing resistance and how important that is. Did that also play out in your music? I I would have to acknowledge that in a lot of ways, yes. Yes. So you had an album out, um, Kautika. What inspired that particular album? What was going on? So my writing in that is kind of cryptic. So I pronounce it chaotica. Chaotica. So kind of like like chaos. Yeah, it's chaotic. Um, And so... Up until that point, I think that there is a lot that it that had had inspired that whole album. It dropped in 2008. I was lucky enough to have um, Kamuela Kahuano as my producer. And up until that time, um, you know, I was I was having opportunities to work with different um, record labels, but it was always like, ah, but you know, could you tone it down? Or we need you to talk about this, or we need you to dress this way, or we need you to wear contacts, or we need you to lose weight or we need you to dye your hair. And so um, I I was really fortunate that he just let me be my rock self. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. So while that album might not be the, the cleanest, in, you know, lyrically or in terms of song composition or even in terms of production, um, it's definitely a representation, I think, of what of my life leading up to that point. Um, and... Gosh, if I could, if I one word that caused the chaos that that inspired Chaotica would be patriarchy. 
<laughs> so a lot of that album is is fighting patriarchy and it and, and its many um incarnations in our community. In one of your tracks, I know cool. The lyrics that you sing is my whole life was <laughs> given less. Daughter of multiple races, I was taught I was nationless. And you're speaking about your experiences as being Kanakamoli, as being part of the sovereign team movement early on, um, feeling what was going on in Uloa, but also about your Ainu heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for those who may not know, what are who are the Ainu? Wow, so the Ainu people, that's a big question. That's a big loaded term. Ainu in our language actually means human. So when you ask who are Ainu, we are, we are humans. Um, <laughs> and it part, uh, when I, I was lucky enough to be able to have access to my grandfather's, you know, um, DNA and his genome is actually 70,000 years old. So we're one of the, the first mutations outside of, of Africa, um, you know, to reach the area of Asia. Um, so the, I, I knew people are the, are another Aboriginal people of the Pacific, yeah. Um, our land is Ainu Moshiri, also known as Japan and Russia. Um, a lot of people say, oh, they're up in northern Japan. But I think that when you look at place names in Japan, certainly their reach is really all throughout Japan and um, and in the southern parts of Russia. Did your Kanakamoli uh, identity influence the way you looked at your Ainu identity and vice versa? Mm. So... I'm gonna say I'm gonna say yes and no. Um, yes, in that creation stories, cosmogony, koihonua, and protocol were taught to me from the Kanaka Maoli lineages, um, and that has allowed me to look for those things on the Ainu side. Um, and in Ainu, in Ainu history, in a way that I don't think I, I would have had I not been um, exposed to my my culture here. But I also think it's very important to acknowledge not all Kanaka is the same, right? And um, and I know that you've talked a lot about that in in your work, right? Not all, um, not all of these oral histories are going to be the same, and so it's really important even in the Kanaka Maoli context to honor, you know, to honor local histories and local traditions. Um, so what we're seeing now with the Ainu is we're seeing um, very little connection with Ainu Ekashi, Huchi, their equivalent of Kupuna. And they're funneling kids out to Hawaii to talk or, or to talk with the Maori and to learn about other cultures. So I want to say, I think it's really important somebody stands up and says um, that while we can learn from each other, it's also important to honor the differences with each other so that people look to their localized stories, they look to their lineage, they look to their, um, you know, to their own uh, creation stories. Um, and within Ainu Moshir, there are many different tribes. There are People estimate 19 to 26 different dialects. Ainu are very famous for bear, bear worship. But my tribe in particular from um, the island of uh, Kuril or Kunashir, the, the, it's not no emphasis on bear. It's about the Rapun Kamui or the Orca. 
So it's really important, um, I think, to recognize that, yes, while, while for me, I have been given an opportunity to experience Aboriginality as a Kanaka Maoli, and that has informed, I think, um, the pride that I have for being Ainu that people in Hokkaido have been stripped of. I want to acknowledge that, but at the same time, I also want to acknowledge that it's important that you can't just look at things through a Kanaka lens when talking about Ainu or look, look, at, look at things through an Ainu lens when talking about Maori. Like, you have to be able to, um, you have to be able to respect each Pacific peoples for, for their commonalities, but also for the differences. There are some people in our Hawaiian community that say that you should only be Kanaka Maoli. And even though they themselves have multiple heritages, um, they insist that you can only choose one identity, mm-hmm. one heritage. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, to people who say that? I, I mean, I respect that mana'o. And I think in, in, and in some ways, it's needed because if you, you're dealing with a culture that has been um, so endangered to the point where it's on the it's it's been compromised, that that pride and that worldview needs to be perpetuated. So I can kako'o that mana'o, but at the same time, for me personally, I have to, I have come to a place in my life where I need to feel whole by honoring my genealogy on, on every side. And I think for me, that's been really telling in my journey in the past five to seven years because I've been able to recognize that there's instances of, of that were so similar. Um, and you would look at my parents and think, well, how did they end up? Like they just have no nothing in common. But there there's such similarities um, within the processes of, colonization or having the Western lens just forced on them or having their ethnic names stripped of them, the historical trauma is similar in my, in my different, you know, um, heritage, <clears throat> my different, my, the different lines that I've been um, examining within my own family. So for me, I personally have found value in just honoring every part of me. But I do, I do kako'o that mana'o that, you know, I mean, you know, uh, it's important to find that pride in, in being kanaka and to live kanaka. Um, and in some ways, I think I'm trying to do that in terms of being an Ainu in the diaspora. In, um, and we talked about this earlier in um, sharing the world through in Ainu lens. Did your family ever talk to you about their Ainu heritage or about what they went through? So I think that from for where we're at in Hawaii in terms of the Ainu community here, there is a very, there's a lot of confusion about what is Ainu and what is Japanese because Ainu has, has been so... Um, intertwined with Japanese. And I think even in Japan, people are very confused about this. So while my family has shared stories about um, just our oral histories, and I've had to, I've had to weed a lot of that out and um, for myself and understand like what, putting it into context historically of what was going on in Hawaii at the time. 
and what was going on with the Meiji era policies that led to the immigration of people that were quote unquote Japanese nationals, but really um, many of them were ab Aboriginal people of Ainu Moshir. I think I'm going to rewind this a little bit. Sure. Um, you're, you were just talking about the Meiji era, and mm -hmm. the Meiji era was very historically important for Japan, but also for Hawaii. And for Japanese here in Hawaii, that that era was the opening of um, Japan to the world, but also Japanese immigration to Hawaii. Were there a lot of Ainu that came over here to Hawaii during this time period, and why did they come? So in doing some triangulation between the stories that have been passed down to me, the stories that I've collected from other families, looking into Hawaiian archives and having friends that have been looking into the Japanese archives, um, I am very confident in saying that vast majority of immigrants that were labeled Japanese nationals were actually mixed Aboriginal people or Aboriginal people that um, the Russian and Japanese governments didn't know what to do with and that they were trying to get rid of them. And they sent them down here um, to a life of really hard labor to work for greedy American businessmen. Um, and, and, in some, and, and many of them became trapped here. And, and around the 17, 17, mid-1700s, there is a policy um, called the Genchitsuma, which mandated that Japanese men sexually conquest Ainu, and I'm going to say Aboriginal women because Ainu people are not the only Aboriginal people of the land that we now call Japan. There's the Mishi, there's the Izumo, there's the Hayato. There are many different. There are many different other tribes um, that I don't even know about because they've they've been so erased. I am one of my very good friends. His name is Shinichi Sasakawa. He's uh, a Mishi scholar. But you talk with other people and they're going to say, oh, the Mishi, are, the Mishi are extinct. Some people even say that about the Ainu, that the Ainu are extinct. So going back to the original question. So we see in the mid-1700s, there is this law mandating really rape on Aboriginal women as a form of conquest. What nobody talks about is who were their offspring around 1850, 1860, there is a politician by the name of Enomoto, and he creates all of these alliances with other countries to send Japanese out to places like Brazil, places like, you know, Central America, as well as Hawaii. And I have no doubt that that was a way to funnel out Aboriginal and mixed Aboriginal people that were not feeding into the, the homogeneity that Japan was trying to create for itself. The image of having one nation, one 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 language, one look. Was this 1700s? What year was that? Enomoto. So this is um, Enomoto is further up into the Meiji era, era. So around 1850, 1865. It's actually a very genet genetically diverse place, even today. Um, I was I was watching like NGN or something, and they you know they have the 
Japanese idols and pop stars, and they were asking them, what's your blood type? And somebody responded, oh, A, isn't it? Like all, all Japanese are A. Um, there's this complete erasure of Native people. So, so even today in Japan, there, there are policies where if you have, I know mixed Ainu um, girls right now that were just terrorized in school because the headmaster of the school said, you're dyeing your hair. Your hair can't naturally be, have red, red highlights or, or you can't naturally mm -hmm. have, you know, um, these light colored streaks in your hair. It has to be black. So you must be dyeing your hair. Um, and that was their natural hair color because of our, our, our heritage. So um, Japan has done a lot to try to create this image that everybody's all the same. In reality, there are the yayoi, there are what they, Japan calls the jomon people. And really the jomon people, that's a very ignorant term in and of itself um, because jomon is the name of a pottery. So that's really erasing across all across Japan, when they're finding these tombs, these ancient tombs and these ancient artifacts, it's erasing what the local people actually called their ancestors. Um, so there's really a lot going on to displace people physically and spiritually to their ancestors. And to erase uh, the history of indigenous peoples of Japan. Yes. Peoples with an S. Yes, correct. But... Wasn't it also true that a lot of these assimilation and forced, well, this genocide, really, uh, policies began with, within the Tokugawa era, particularly with Ieyosu. Um, yes, so... It was, uh, you could kill an Aboriginal male without being punished because they were barbarians. Yes, correct. And... Over and over through, throughout history, um, unfortunately, history is not written from the, you know, from, from the native language of the many tribes of Ainu, Ainu Moshiri, um, the many native peoples of Russia, the many native peoples of what we now call Japan. Um, everything is written to the point of view of the colonizer, of the Russians or of the Japanese. And what we see over and over again is the term barbarian used. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, they call him an explorer um, by the last name of Landor. And he writes about uh, Ainu man. Um, his quote was something to the effect of, like most animals, he doesn't like to be stared at. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they, you see this term barbarian, you see this term animal, hairy animal of the Aboriginal people um, as an excuse to enslave them, as an excuse to extort, you know, to, to use them for labor. And I think even really among this, this still exists today. Um, my tribe is not of the Hokkaido area. It's actually of Kuril and Sakhalin. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a, there's a long history um, between the Ainu and the other native people there. So it, um, in Sakhalin, you have the Nib people, you have um, uh, the Koryak people, you have all these different people. And there was a history of slavery among the people. And then come the Russians, and which, which we can find in other places in the Pacific, in other places. In, and the, the idea of slavery was not to what 
the Western concept of slavery is. Um, it was the idea that you could somehow work your way out of servitude or there was, the history of slavery was much different. And then comes um, the Russians and they use, they begin to use the NIVC as the trackers. So very similar, I don't know if you saw the movie um, Rabbit Proof Fence about um, the, ab the, the Aboriginal Australians, but how they went and they used actual indigenous people to track down other indigenous people to use them as slaves. So you begin to see that happening. And then um, Japan and Russia start fighting over the territories of, of Kuril Island and Sakhalin Island. And there are all these things come into place. That by the, by the time the Meiji era happens, you have Japan and Russia, and then in comes Kalakaua, um, approaching Japan, trying to get an official relationship. So all these things, there's this long history of, of intertribal relations with the Aboriginal people, and then the Tokugawa era and, um, and the wars that happened, the resistance of the Aboriginal people for what we call the Wajin or the Japanese. There, there are many, many wars, many, many um, acts of resistance along the way. There's actually a, a warrior by the name of Aterui who was beheaded by, um, by, the, by the Japanese, by the Tokugawa. There's a lot, long, long history. So in comes Kalakawa, and that is that then is the catalyst for this wave of Ainu people coming to Hawaii. Do you think that some of that was influenced by, as far as King Kalakaua was concerned, is because he wanted this, this type of relationship with the stronger power that was non-Western. And Japan was really the only country at the time that had a reasonable, stable economy, a large naval force, a large... I mean, because when the king went to Japan, uh, and on his third day in Tokyo, they gave him a military parade of 10,000 soldiers. He had wanted an alliance, an Asian alliance, and then he wanted also Princess Kailani to marry one of the Japanese princes. But even before that, there was the Japanese delegation to the United States mm -hmm. that stopped over in Hawaii, 1860, 1860, yeah. And that included, um, they called it, what, the Seven Demayos. But one of the Demayos was actually Mishi. Mm -hmm. And they stayed in Hawaii for about a week. And we know that Kalakaua had access to the delegation because he was the aide-de-camp for King Kamehameha IV. So he was taking care of the needs of this delegation from Japan. Oh, interesting. I actually, I actually wasn't aware of that delegation. I would love to hear more information about it. I do know that um, the 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 Mo'olelo about the Ganin Mono mm -hmm. um, and the hundred year history that of, of what we quote unquote Japanese, supposed Japanese here in Hawaii doesn't, doesn't match up. Um, so when you look at, um, when I was on, on Instagram and Bishop Museum had posted one of their pictures of one of the Ganin Mono mm -hmm. and his name in Hawaiian was actually Umi Umi. And um, they translated it as, you know, facial hair or beard. And um, the Yayoi class, or what we now know as Japanese, 
are very different than the Ainu Jomon class. Um, and throughout writings, you'll, you'll, you'll see Japanese saying over and over and over again, we're the hairy barbarians. We're the hairy barbarians. The Yayoi class is physically unable to grow facial hair. So I really question why the Ganden Mono came. It was a hermit nation at the time. So what was happening to make these Japanese nationals want to leave? Um, why did, what, what happened? What were those circumstances? And then they ended up here. They, 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 quite a few ended up staying, intermixing with Hawaiian people. And when I see these people physically, they don't look like Japanese to me. They actually look like Karelian or Sakhalin Ainu to me. So, um, and, and the, the facial hair is a, is a very strong characteristic of that. So I really, number one, Japan is much more indigenous. It's much more mixed than we commonly think it to be. There's a lot more intermixing, even more so because of these forced policies of sexual conquest of the Aboriginal women. Though I cannot say for sure because it's not written concretely in like black and white. I do have sus- I do suspect that many of the Ganemono were Aboriginal people trying to escape. There were also a, bunch, a lot of land clearings as well mm-hmm. during this era, where there were uh, major um, corporations were buying up agriculture lands and forcing the resident tenants off the land as well, creating a huge surplus of of poor. Basically, mm-hmm. and Japan was exporting its poor. I think Japan exported what one million mm-hmm. Japanese to Brazil alone mm-hmm. during this time period. And you know, and what's funny is, um, and when you talk with Japanese today about it, the perception that island Hawaii Japanese, you know, Kepani here have about being Japanese, like oh, oh yeah, everybody has a story about their family comes from samurai. and everybody has this story. But when you talk with people from Japan, they'll be oh poor thing. You came from such poor people. You came from such poor conditions. Um, there, there is a there even just in the way we kind of internalize these stories here in Hawaii compared to what is commonly mm-hmm. known about us in Japan is two different stories. But I would really in deconstructing the narratives of Ainu both here in Hawaii as well as in Japan, many of these people were Ainu, Emishi, Izumo, Hayato. They were Aboriginal or mixed Aboriginal people that they didn't know what to do with. They then became the poor class the, and then they were funneled out to other places. And I think, you know, even in Kalakawa's conversation with Emperor Meiji, you can see he, Emperor Meiji is trying to be very responsible in, in how he takes care of his people, who he considers his people as Japanese. These were not poor people. These were not people that were to face famine or, or were to do labor. So though these things are not written down by colonizer who wrote history, I think locally what our families are saying is that they were stuck here as laborers because they had no, they couldn't go back home. They couldn't go back to Aino Moshiri. There was no more. Insert the name. Do you think that was mainly Emperor Meiji or do you think that was his wife? 
Because the more and more I'm reading about his wife, mm -hmm. the more and more I'm realizing how much influence she had over policies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's main consorts. That's that's a very interesting point of view. You also have to realize the context of the day that there were greedy American businessmen wanting free labor in in plantations that they were building in Hawaii. Kalakaua makes a remark to Emperor Meiji, don't worry, you know, something to the effect of, you know, don't worry about the Japanese. We have Chinese to do the labor. So I think we also really need to deconstruct Kalakaua's role in his idea of what of what cheap labor or, or work in, in the Hawaiian kingdom, what that what that looked like to him and his responsibility in that as well. But you also see American businessmen, you see Japanese businessmen and politicians, you see Russian um, businessmen all kind of coming together in Kalakaua's um, journey at around that time. So in so for my for the people of my tribe in um, Kuril and Sakhalin, many of them were funneled into Hokkaido's Kita Hiroshima, which has a very particular relationship in the south with Hiroshima. So these people were funneled from the land we commonly call as Russia to Kita Hiroshima to the industrialized Hiroshima. And so many people in Hawaii think, oh, my family came from Hiroshima. And that's where my family, no, that's where the boat left Japan. That's not where your ancestral family is from. And, and I've gone back and forth with many genealogists from the Hiroshima prefecture clubs about this. And they don't like to let me into the clubs or the activities because <laughs> of my point of view. And so it's disputable, but it's, it's a part of history that I offer. And something you just said just clicked because a lot of uh, Okinawan families were funneled through um, Nagasaki. So they tended to think of themselves as being Japanese, even though they were originally Okinawan. And they were funneled because of Japan's annexation of Okinawa mm -hmm. that occurred around the same time period. Mm -hmm. So it's important to recognize in 1920, Osa Osaka has a world fair. And on exhibit, they have Bukuins, they have Ainu, they have Aboriginal people of um, the Sakhalin tribes. Um, they have um, Mongolians all kept at this World Fair to people look and, and laugh at and ogle at these um, Dojin or indigenous people or Aboriginal people. One of the problems is to, to this day, indigenous is seen as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard for us to go back to Japan or go back to Okinawa and do identity work because people are so ashamed. There's this history of being this freak if you're indigenous. So we see before, before the wave of Japanese and Okinawans coming to Hawaii, you see this um, breakdown of Aboriginal identity and you see this breakdown of the resistance because there's this enormous pressure to be Japanese. And that remains when they come to Hawaii, there because there were there were legitimately there were some Japanese families that came with them. My my theory is to keep to keep the non-Japanese in check. But you could only access rice in times of famine if you were a Japanese national. So that kept people straight in the Hawaiian kingdom in terms of them 
their allegiance to Japan. Because if the plantationers weren't feeding them, Japan was sending down bags of rice and you could only access that if you remain Japanese. That's right, because the Japanese consulate um, here also kept files on prominent Japanese leaders here to make sure yes. that they were keeping the party line. Yeah. And this was going on all the way up until World War II. So on my, on my, ironically, on my straight, you know, straight Japanese, straight Japanese side, uh, my great-grandfather was sent down here to open up one of the first Buddhist temples in Kapoho. Um, and I think I, my personally, they, they were smart being very master colonizers, the Japanese. They, they, they made sure to keep the hierarchy, the familiar hierarchy of Japanese society with the people as they transitioned here. Because there would be this big shame because Kalakawa approached Japan because that keeping the Chinese in the labor status had, had already basically failed. So they didn't want that shame on Japan. So they did all that they could to make sure that once down here, the the Aboriginal people were stuck in that that labor class. Yeah. Also, the other attempts for immigration had also failed. The king tried to import Pacific Islanders from <clears throat> Micronesia and from uh, Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. from the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia, and that all failed. The yeah. last resort was really. Japan. Right. Yeah. But ironically, on my on even on that very straight, straight and narrow mm-hmm. um, Japanese side, which I come from a very historical family, the, the Mito clan was a samurai clan. My grand my great grandmother, when I test my grandmother's genome, it is the D haplo group. So it's a part of the Ainu haplo group. And what you saw was again the products of the rape the pillaging of the Aboriginal people, and sometimes their offspring were kept in the clan. Um, so my, gran- my, my maternal grandmother's line, or my grandmother's maternal line was the Murakami Suigun, who were basically pirates. That they were, they were descendants of Emperor Mur- Murakami. He probably had Ainu concubine. They were probably his descendants. And they were they most likely the rebelling around the, the waters of Ehime and tried to get rid of them, so married them off to samurai and they ended up here. You know, with the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Ginin Mono, or the first Japanese to Hawaii, do you feel that the narrative of indigenous peoples of Japan and Russia that came here, uh, such as the Ainus and the Okinawans, have also been suppressed or erased? as part of these celebrations? I'm laughing as you're asking me this because you know exactly where I stand. (laughs) You know that for me... It's good for the listeners to understand this. The connection between the Kepani and Kanaka Maoli was erased through much of these celebrations, which just enraged me. I I, I got kicked out of one event. (laughs) You know, you don't, you didn't, somebody was like, oh, but they mentioned Larry Kimura, but where was, where, where was honoring him in officially in these celebrations? Where was honoring poor Burgess, who was a strong activist that, that wrote such beautiful poetry about being discriminated as, uh, 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 by the, on by the Japanese community because 
she was both Japanese and Kanaka Maoli. We are here, you know, Kanaka Japanese, we're here, and none of us were on the panel. Um, you know, I, I, I did not see that voice represented to the extent that um, our culture is. There's so much of our, of our cultures that are intertwined um, between just local island, what we now know as Kepani and Kanaka Maoli. And through all of those Ganan Mono celebrations, you saw next to nothing of that representation. And to me, that's so sad. To say nothing else of the erasure of the Emishi Ainu, Karelian Sakalin Ainu, you know, Hayato, Izumo, Okinawans, to say nothing else of all of that. It quite upsetting. Well, full disclosure, one of the organizers for one of the celebrations had wrote to me about something I had said about uh, Japan being the only nation that had officially protested against annexation. So they wanted me to write an article. I said I would, <laughs> but I wanted a reference to the 1905 um, Taft Katsuo Agreement, which was an agreement made by the U.S. and Japan that allowed Japan to annex uh, Taiwan, Korea, Manchuria in exchange for allowing, allowing the U.S. to annex Hawaii and the Philippines. So I kind of declined because I wanted that mention. Because we cannot just be praising these people for standing up. At the same time, they were also imperialists as well. Oh, 100%. 100%. The Japanese are master imperialists. Um, very well. disappointing yeah. when to see just local, you know, Kepani drivers of the rice rocket, that whole culture. And they have their rising sun flag. So very different between the Japanese national flag and the flag with the red dot and the red beam sticking out. Christian Hosoi made that very famous. It's a fashion statement now. That is the equivalent of um, fascism. That is the death flag across the Pacific. And local Japanese prefecture clubs and teeny boppers, and they, they, they use this as a sign of fact. It's, it's the equivalent of walking around wearing a swastika. And, you know, local Japanese perpetuate that to this day. It's, it's horribly ignorant. It's very sad. And one of the reasons that I'm doing this is so that, you know, we can share our stories and these experiences. And on one hand, I see it as sad, ignorant, and, 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 and people in the local Japanese community that are perpetuating hate. On the other hand, I see them as colonized. So it's like, stop it. Learn your history. Learn where you come from. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to truly respect this Aina that embraced us, the Hawaiian kingdom that embraced us. Because what was not said in all of this Kanin Mono fervor that happened is the fact that with the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, not only Kanaka Maoli, but Kepani were under direct attack by white supremacy. So we, you know, that all of that was a story not told in the celebration of the survival of our people. And I, I just see that as incredibly sad. It was a big miss. Yeah. There was a lot of problems with the celebration. For example, as well, going back to the overthrow, one of the last acts of the legislature at the time was to send a commission to Washington, D.C. to abrogate the reciprocity treaty. And the queen herself had said, that if we're going to abrogate the reciprocity treaty, 
then maybe we need to start looking at Japan and Japanese corporations to start building factories here. Maybe we need to start industrializing Hawaii, get Hawaii away from the being an appendage of the United States. And that was also another reason why the overthrow happened was because we had the queen who was challenging the white supremacy here in Hawaii. And then when the queen was overthrown, of course, you also know that um, the Japanese had sent warships. And one of the admirals who came here had offered the queen to establish a government in exile in Japan. The queen declined because she didn't think that her <laughs> overthrow was going to last this long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in- incredibly sad. And unless we look at where we've been, we won't have any understanding of where we are or where white supremacy or fascism is taking our people next. Like we won't have any understanding of of that unless we understand where we've been together as a Pacific people. And the same things that happened to us here in Hawaii have happened to, um, you know, the Guamanians. They've happened to many different places in the Federated Federated States of of Micronesia. Manchuria, you see horrible things that, that Japan has done in Korea and in China and and there's such an erasure of it now. Mm-hmm. And the Philippines. And the Fi- oh, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> and the Philippines. Yeah, so like for me personally, I have, a, have very strong feelings about the Rising Sun flag as well. Um, so on my Filipino side, one of my aunts was actually a comfort woman. And she was 14 years old when she was taken by Japanese soldiers. So personally, when I see that flag as well, it's the same as seeing a swastika. Yes. Yeah. And on your Facebook, he had shown a picture. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even, it's not even the picture. If you go to Shirakia, mm-hmm. there's actually stores, um, food stalls that mm-hmm. display the Rising Sun flag. Mm-hmm. They don't, the irony is that one of the stall owners is Okinawan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's incredibly sad the way that these histories have been erased. And and one of the problem is the pseudo-conservative party in the diet today in Japan will completely deny that all of these atrocities have happened. And yeah. for whatever reason, we as, as Hawaii Kepani keep ourselves in, in the dark. And so that has to stop. Yeah, because it's not taught in Japan. World War II doesn't exist. It's the... For years, it was taught as the Pacific aggression, mm-hmm. where Japan tried to liberate um, Asian colonies from their European colonizers. And some of it's, you know, also been fed up, been fed because Southeast Asian governments like Indonesia and the Philippines mm-hmm. have just allowed Japan to whitewash its own history in their own countries yeah. because Japan is a major donor to foreign aid. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. We can get we can get on this train together for a long time. <laughs> Sorry. So, what are some of your current projects and upcoming lectures? Oh, hey, well, I just had a really cool one um, yesterday, and right now I have nothing else except just hitting my dissertation. Um, getting some of these oral histories that have been passed on to me published 
so that it's no longer erased, so that these stories can be honored and perpetuated. How's it about your music? <laughs> so right now I have nothing coming up in terms of performances, but if people are interested, they can go ahead and look up Katana and Kiaraka on Google Play and on iTunes, and they will find my album there. Are you planning on any upcoming album, albums or singing again? I am working on something. I'm not sure if it'll be an album. I'm working on um, an, hopefully an anthem as a call to action to bring Kanaka back into Waikiki. And I'm also hoping, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely there yet, but I'm also hoping to convince my dissertation committee to allow me to record my dissertation with, in, a, in a very hip-hop spoken word style to challenge the written hegemony. So well, That sounds great. Actually, do you think they'll allow it? I'm fortunate because there's actually a professor at Clemson University. His name is A.D. Carson. He just did a hip-hop album as his dissertation. I do have some red tape to, to chop through at UH, so hopefully we can come through a nice, a nice compromise. We'll see. Well, mahalo for being in this um, podcast, and we look forward to more of your lectures and your projects in the future. Right, mahalo. Mahalo to Hawaii Council for the Humanities for sponsoring the production of this story. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.